TV. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show that's devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. This past two months, we've been focusing on women's sexuality. Tonight is actually the last night of what has been a fascinating series. Uh, my guest is Bethany Hayes. Bethany is an OBGYN, so she specializes in women's health with a focus on menopausal hormones and also breast cancer. She is the winner of the Linus Pauling Award, which is a national award for someone who makes a significant contribution to the field of functional medicine. She is local, based right here in Falmouth. She's the medical director of True North. She also happens to be the mom of three and a grandma of one. Bethany, welcome to Safe Space. Thanks for having me, Anne. Really glad that you're here. I want to start right out with, of course, that favorite subject, if you're talking about women's hormones, the menstrual cycle. And I want to ask you if you could just map out for us what happens to our hormones during the cycle and then what happens to our desire, at least what we know about that and how they correlate and how they don't. Right. Well, women's hormones are really fascinating because they really change from the first half of the month to the second half of the month. And, of course, that's really all about being able to get pregnant and have a baby. Then we go through a second big change when we go through menopause. So, once again, our hormones completely mix up and change to, a diff to different levels. And both of those create such changes in our bodies, our minds, our uh, being in the world that uh, medical scientists really hate studying women because they can't figure out how to study us from one day to the next. We're different every single day. So those hormone changes have a profound effect on women's interest in sex and their ability to respond sexually. And I think it's a deep, dark secret how those hormones work for women because we don't have the same cycles of interest in sex and sexuality that our male um, partners do. And Paul the more reason to be having this show. So there you go. It. <clears throat> there you go. So the first half of the cycle, the hormones are kind of low and, and pretty stable, and most women feel pretty good in the first half of the cycle. Uh, they feel calm. They can handle anything, um, and they're um, they're you know feeling great. Uh, most women notice that you know right after their periods start or right after their periods over is probably the best week out of the month. Uh -huh. Then there's a big surge of both estrogen and testosterone that causes the woman to ovulate or to release an egg, which then can potentially become a pregnancy. So there's a surge of testosterone right pre-ovulation. There is. And it's very important. Uh, the second thing that happens is that then after ovulation, the ovary begins to produce both estrogen and progesterone. And what's important is that they have to be balanced. If estrogen and progesterone are not carefully balanced, they have very different and opposing effects in the brain. So estrogen is activating and sometimes even irritating in the brain, and progesterone is calming in the brain. So if you have too much estrogen and not enough progesterone, you get really cranky or premenstrual, which is that time of the cycle. So pre-PMS would be too much estrogen not balanced by enough progesterone. Yeah, it's an imbalance of hormones is my understanding of, of what PMS really is. 
Okay. And so sometimes you can correct it by adding more progesterone, but sometimes you have to correct it by getting better metabolism and excretion of the estrogen. You've got to get rid of the extra estrogen. Uh-huh. So uh, functional medicine gives us a lot of opportunities to, uh, to look into that system and to work with those hormones to get them balanced again. Okay, so, and right now we're talking about the balance in terms of mood, so to help someone not be irritable. But, of course, there's a very complex interplay between mood and interest in sex. And so how, so if progesterone is calming, is progesterone more kind of sexual desire promoting or not? Well, uh, progesterone helps to balance uh, not only estrogen, but it is a GABA receptor agonist. I know that doesn't mean anything to most people, but it's the same uh, receptor in the brain, the same ear that listens to drugs like Valium. Uh-huh. So it can calm you down uh, when things are irritating. Yes. And of course, when women are sexual, they need to be calm and receptive. So it's not that progesterone makes you interested in sex or uh, makes sex better. It just helps to create that that feeling of safe, calm, receptive, wanting to draw in your partner. Yeah, and rela- being relaxed. And being relaxed. Uh-huh. So isn't that interesting because it's always curious to me how much people think that estrogen is or is not promoting a woman's sexual desire. Tell me what we know about estrogen acting alone in that respect. Well, see, I don't think estrogen acts alone in that respect, probably ever. None none of our hormones ever really act alone. They're all talking to each other. So that uh, that is the first important point. We'd like to think in this very isolated way, but everything's always in a system. Everything talks to everything else. So you put a new hormone in or an extra amount of one hormone in, you are really going to change a whole bunch of hormones, and you better be knowing where that hormone is going to go metabolically and also who it's going to affect. Yeah. Or you get completely different responses than you think you're going to get. Interesting. And that's been one of the big issues about giving women testosterone for sexual desire yes. is that testosterone has effects on estrogen. What so does it have on estrogen? Well, when you give testosterone, uh, testosterone has an effect on <coughs> sex hormone binding globulin. It's the protein that kind of shepherds estrogen and testosterone around in your bloodstream. So if estrogen is bound up, your tissues, your body, your brain can't get a hold of it and use it. If, if testosterone is low, sex hormone binding globulin is high, so your estrogens are not available. If, sex, if testosterone is high, mm-hmm. so you've given too much testosterone, then sex hormone binding globulin goes too low and you release too much estrogen and you end up with problems with things like breast cancer. So in other words, too much testosterone can actually lead to too much estrogen. That's right. Uh-huh. Which is not how we tend to think of it. We tend to think of it either or. Right. Yeah, very intriguing. And so, right, so that becomes a whole other issue in terms of health risk factors. Exactly. Yes, because when, when I hear women talking about whether or not to take testosterone often right after menopause when they feel like their sexual desire has gone down, they're more concerned about facial hair, deepening voice, those kinds of acne. Those are things that they're really worried about. I don't know that anyone's telling them that their estrogen might go up. Right. 
I think I, I get a little crazy when I hear people blithely saying, oh, well, you're having trouble with um, your libido, so let's give you testosterone. Right. First of all, m- many women don't need any extra testosterone. Uh-huh. And second of all, if you give too much testosterone, you produce problems. So right. n- nobody's measuring testosterone levels and then thinking through what's going to happen to the rest of these hormones if I give testosterone. Right. So let's start with your first beef with the issue, which is that many women may not need it. And where do you go in your mind when you say that? What are you thinking? Are you thinking because their testosterone level is fine, or are you thinking that there are other causes of why they have low libido? Oh, well, that's a really good that's a really good question because both of those can be true. Uh-huh. I think we got into a mindset about menopause that came from the fact that between about 1950 and about the year 2000, many many women were having hysterectomies. Like almost half of American women had hysterectomies at an average age of 35. So uh-huh like 15, 20 years before they were supposed to go through menopause. Why? And so those are, it is kind of scary. And those women clearly needed hormones. They had had their ovaries removed and nobody was replacing hormones. So we came along and said, oh, menopausal women need their hormones replaced. Uh-huh. And then we swung to the other end of the spectrum and gave everybody hormones. Right. And then we got the Women's Health Initiative where we discovered that unless you'd had your ovaries removed, giving you hormones produced a whole series of problems. And why don't you just list those briefly? Well, if you give too much estrogen to someone who has normally functioning postmenopausal ovaries, you can increase their risk of breast cancer slightly. You can significantly increase their risk of blood clotting problems, particularly if you give the hormones by mouth. Uh, and that produces an increased risk of heart disease or heart heart attacks and strokes. Right. So there were a number of problems that we found, and then of course that caused a swing back to, oh my God, we can't give hormones to anybody. Right. And of course, as is often true when you see a pendulum swinging back and forth like that, the truth is in the middle. Right. So there are women who need hormone replacement, and there are women who don't need hormone replacement. And for women who have normally functioning ovaries after menopause, 80% of those women do better without hormones. That was one of the big studies that came out of the Hearst trial, which is one of those big So when you say do better, do you mean do better in terms of like hot flashes, or do you mean do better in terms of overall health outcomes? In terms of overall health, sense of well-being, sexuality, um, uh, feeling good. So sexuality got to count in that. I think sexuality was one of the things they looked at okay. in that study. They so rarely look at that. They, for that. Yeah. <laughs> but they I just they ask women, you know, how did they feel generally, and how was their body working, and did they have aches and pains, and how did they sleep, and sort of general lifestyle issues. Eighty percent of them did better off hormones. I thought that was fascinating. It is fascinating. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann. This is Safe Space, and I'm talking to Bethany Hayes about the impact of hormones on our sexuality. I want to pick up where we left off about testosterone earlier. And you were saying that not all women need testosterone if their libido is low. So tell me more about that. Well, testosterone uh, is one of the downstream hormones. So There are upstream hormones, sort of the first ones that get made, and then they go downstream to make a lot of other hormones. So the downstream hormones can change a lot based on um, lots of different kinds of uh, problems that women encounter. So you can get 
decreased downstream hormones, for instance, if you're under a lot of stress. Because the stress hormone, cortisol, sort of takes precedence over things like sexuality and mm-hmm. downstream hormones like estrogen and testosterone. So if you're under a lot of stress, the precursors for estrogen and testosterone get stolen away to make the uh, stress hormones, and then they're just not there. Interesting. The problem is not, oh, I need more downstream hormones. The problem is I need less stress so that I can make my own downstream hormones. Right, so it's almost like a train getting shunted onto a different track. Exactly. So all the precursors go towards making cortisol if a person is very stressed. What are some other examples of that? Is that the main one? Uh, I think that's the main one. The other thing that's interesting about testosterone is you can make too much testosterone if you have diabetes or insulin resistance, which is the pre-diabetic state. Uh, It turns on some of the enzymes that are needed to make these downstream hormones. So diabetes or insulin resistance leads to the production of too much testosterone. Very interesting, because I've heard that people with pre-diabetes actually get given testosterone in order to increase their muscle mass to increase their ability to handle sugar. Well, you better be careful with that, because you're going to end up with, you know, hair growth, and and you're going to end up with that raising of testosterone, which then lowers sex hormone binding globulin, and then then, uh, if you lower sex hormone binding globulin, remember you release estrogen, and now you have an increased risk of breast cancer. So is that why diabetic people, uh, diabetic women, have a higher risk of breast cancer? It could be. Very interesting. I did not know about that relationship. It's intriguing. So these are some of the real cautions that you have about using testosterone. Uh So part of it is that there's other consequences beyond the the ones that, the sort of cosmetic ones, that are far more serious. And then secondly, that really it's, we're not looking at the root cause of the problem. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to shift now to talk a little bit about oxytocin. Before we do that, we're going to have a little musical break. We'll be back in in a few seconds as it is. Safe Space, coming back to my conversation with Dr. Bethany Hayes about the impact of hormones on our sexuality. And I want to take a step back now and look at the bigger picture, which is how important are hormones for our interest in sex? Oh, uh, I think they're very important. But I think the effect of hormones is different for men and women. Okay. Tell me about that. I think um, women, uh, women's sexuality is, in addition to being physiologic and hormonal, is largely in their minds. And I think it has part to do with uh, what we're using sex for. Uh, so what I notice about men and women is that women use sex to make relationships. And relationship is more something that's going on in your mind than it is something going on in your body. 
men often use sex as a release of tension, and they don't really understand why women don't want to have sex when they're tense. So the guy comes home, you know, he's had a hard day at the office, he yells at the kids, he kicks the dog, and he wants sex. And his wife goes, huh, what do you mean? If you want sex, start by helping me get the kids off to school in the morning, you know? So we're looking to build the relationship. Yes, we want sex. Yes, we love sex. But we're wanting sex because it means something to us, and what it means is we're in a wonderful relationship. We want the relationship. And that's a difficult place for teenage girls to find themselves because they want the relationship. And if they use sex to get it, they can get into a lot of trouble. Right. And I, of course, feel compelled to speak for some people, of course, who fall outside these generalities because it's there's so much judgment about sexuality. So I know, you know, for women who don't feel that way or for men who aren't that way, we immediately can think, well, what's wrong with me? So there's a range, obviously, for both men and women. Oh, yeah. Everybody's unique. Well, just think about all the different uh, variables in terms of hormones. Think of all the differences in people's minds. Think of all the differences about how we were raised and what we were taught. There are layers after layers after layers. So, of course, I'm talking in generalities about men and women. Right. And there are always exceptions at both ends of the spectrum. Right. Okay, so you also said something to me fairly provocative when we were preparing for the show, which is that you said the main thing about hormones and sexuality has to do with who initiates or who starts it. Uh That was very intriguing. I wondered if you could say more about that. Well, um, I think uh, culturally we sort of believe that we should want sex on a regular basis X number of times a week. I've heard three times a week quoted as normal amounts of sex. Now, Men kind of want sex every morning because that's when their testosterone levels are the highest. And they have a spike of testosterone every morning. And women who've lived with men kind of know this. Um, Women, on the other hand, have surges of testosterone. And the surges occur at ovulation. That's to get you pregnant. Uh And then there's another little surge right before your menstrual period starts. And I think that's to help you stay married. (laughs) And I don't think men understand that if they waited for those times of the month, they could just sit back and be eaten alive, you know, because when a woman is interested in sex, she's really interested. She could eat the guy alive three times a day. But men are always going, well, why do I have to work so hard to get sex, and why don't you want sex like I want sex? And the deal is you got to know when the timing is right. That is so, so intriguing. You know, it feels so sad to me for straight couples. How come this information isn't more publicly available? I don't know. It, you know, but my rule is the person with the most testosterone on any given day is in charge of getting the other one interested. Okay, but even on the days that the woman has a surge of testosterone, is her testosterone really higher than the man's? I should have to think about that. Probably not, but it could. I mean, it goes up really pretty high, so it, does. it could approach levels. Okay, because part, part of what I've always wondered about when I've gone to talks about sexual desire in men and women, the man is usually the reference point, and then it's always like, well, women have less testosterone, so therefore they have less desire, and it's considered like, boom, biology is destiny. You know, that's it. That's all there is to say about it. And it seems to me that it's got to be far more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. It's far more complicated because, remember, testosterone is also about about how your brain is organized around your sexuality. Say more about that. 
Well, that organizational piece happens in the womb. And so your brain becomes male or female depending on its exposure primarily to testosterone in the the uterus, in the mother's uterus. Yes. So uh, your um, attitudes, your, uh, to some extent, your need for uh, sexual intimacy is programmed in in those ways. And I don't think we really even are beginning, I mean, we're just beginning to understand what that neuronal programming uh, does to um, our preferences uh, for male or female sexual partners, our interest in the number of sexual encounters we have in in a given time period, our approach to those sexual encounters, how long does it take us to get interested in having sex um, when we have a partner who's trying to get us interested. And then what does orgasm feel like to a given individual? And I think those are all variables. Yes, and such interesting subjects. Yeah. <laughs> I want to use this moment to now talk about oxytocin, which is oh, we yes. haven't gone into yet. But tell me how you understand the role of oxytocin in, in women's sexuality. Well, oxytocin is the hormone of love and desire. It's the hormone of birth and breastfeeding. Uh, it is uh, thought of as a, women, a woman's hormone, but it's in men and women. And it's released um, just before the baby is born to help the uterus contract and expel the baby. Mm-hmm. It's released with each breastfeeding to make the Uh, milk ducts contract to bring the milk down to the nipple so that the baby can get all of the milk in the breast. And it's released with orgasm. Now, I think oxytocin is interesting because it's one of four hormones in our body or chemicals in our body that counteract adrenaline, which is the anxiety hormone or the fight-or-flight hormone. So people who genetically or culturally have very high levels of adrenaline are always looking for those four balancing hormones to try to keep their adrenaline levels under control. Mm-hmm. So the four balancing hormones are GABA, remember that GABA receptor I talked about that progesterone uh, affects. Yes. Number two is cortisol, which is automatically released whenever you release adrenaline, and that's the stress hormone. Number three is uh, endorphins, which is why people with lots of adrenaline often really need and love their exercise. These are the people who will go for a run on Christmas Day. And the last one is oxytocin. So these are also people who have a high need for release of sexual tension and the oxytocin surge that happens when that comes. To help them feel calm. To help them feel calm. And that's why you feel good after sex. Wow. It's relationship. There actually, there's somebody who's trying to use oxytocin as a sort of a pheromone uh, because one of the things that they find in people's brains with oxytocin is that they are more trusting. So uh-huh. they're trying to, I don't know, they're going to use it for Wall Street bankers or whatever, but, you know, they, they are trying to, um, to patent a way to use oxytocin to make you trust. That sounds very dangerous. It does. It's really, I think, very dangerous. <laughs> but use it terribly, terribly. It could be some terrible ways. But it's interesting that, that somebody thought, thought of using it that way. Yeah. So I have, I have two questions about oxytocin. One is, I remember that um, for women who are trying to bring on labor for whatever reason, they suggest breast stimulation as a way to bring on your own oxytocin. Oh, even better than that is sex. So here's a question that I have. If... If a woman has low sexual desire, mm-hmm. but she wants to have a 
that feeling of bonding and love. If she stimulates herself that way, she, and she gets into some kind of, with herself, breast stimulation, can she enhance her own desire for her partner? I think you can. Uh, there's a, a woman from the um, Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, and I'm probably going to pronounce her name wrong, but I think it's Moberg, uh, who has studied oxytocin her entire life. She says that gentle touch on the front part of your body will release oxytocin. It doesn't take a lot of stimulation. Just the baby's hands massaging the mother's breast will cause spikes of oxytocin to be released. Right. So hugging causes uh, oxytocin uh, release. That makes sense. You know, gentle stroking causes uh-huh. oxytocin relief. You don't have to, like, zero well, in the muscles are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's great because that was the information I got when I was pregnant is you have to get into some pretty vigorous stimulation to try <laughs> to help bring on labor. No, what I told people is you have to make it feel like great sex. That's what gets you into labor is something that will bring on the hormones of orgasm. Yeah, that makes sense. Another question I wondered about oxytocin, you know, it, it's it's released with childbirth. It's thought to be the bonding hormone. So many women are given pitocin, which is a synthetic form of oxytocin during labor. And then there's a feedback loop. The body senses, oh, there's enough of this in the body. I'm not going to release more of my own. And I wonder, because it's just a little pet theory, whether Pitocin in any way reduces women's bonding experience because their own endogenous, their own production of oxytocin is shut down. I wonder if anyone's looked at that and what you know about that. I think that's a really good theory. And my theory about that is when the oxytocin is given exogenously, right, in a needle. it's not in a needle in your blood vein. Yeah. yeah, it gets to your uterus, and yes, it may get to your breast, but it's not made right there in your brain. So the levels that are in your brain are very, very different than if it's in, if it's produced right there in your brain in response to normal labor and the sensations of labor and what's going on at the birth of the baby and the feeling of the baby on your breast and yes. you know, all of that. And I, I do think that is one of the downsides of this incredible increase in the number of cesarean births and induced labors and interventions in the normal process of labor and birth and bonding. I, I think that's probably true. I think of so many women who mourn that they didn't have that bonding experience mm-hmm. and who really end up feeling very critical of themselves as mothers. Yeah. And I wondered about that role. Okay, so I, I realize we're almost out of time. There are a few questions I just can't bear to end the show without asking you. One was, you also said something very provocative to me when we were planning the show, and you talked about men's sensitivity around feeling that they can satisfy their partners and that men can be very easily wounded that way. It struck me as information that for straight women might be really important. I wonder if you could say more about that. Um, Well, sadly, I kind of found out out about this the hard way. Um, Mm. I think, although I like to say uh, sort of half-jokingly that for women, sex is about 80% above the waist, and for men, it's about 80% below the waist, there is a place that men are very tender about sex, and it is... Um, it's that uh, in studies of what makes a man feel manly, feel like a man, it's not sex, power, control, money, you know, being the head guy. It's actually being able to provide for his family. That's what makes a man feel good about himself. Mm -hmm. And in the sexual arena, being able to provide for his lover, 
in the way of making her satisfied and bringing her to orgasm and making her feel as good as he feels is what men are really all about and, and really want to do, whether they can express that or whether they're good at it or not. That's what they want to be doing. And so if a woman says something or does something that damages his belief that he can satisfy her, it, it really is a hard thing for a man to hear. And I think we as women need to be very gentle with that part of, uh, of a man's psyche. It's helpful to know. I realize we're almost out of time, and I wondered if you might, I imagine there are many people who might want to further this conversation themselves with you, and I wonder if, if someone wanted to make an appointment to see you, how could they do so? Sure. Well, I'm at True North in Falmouth, Main Center for Functional Medicine and the Healing Arts, and we're a wonderful um, integrative center. Um, our telephone number is 207-781-4488. And we have a wonderful website at www.truenorthhealthcenter.org. And we're a nonprofit, 501c3, and our mission is to change healthcare in America, starting right here in Southern Maine. Great. Let's hope this is a step toward that. Bethany, it's been such a pleasure to have you at Safe Space. Thank you for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. This is great fun. My thanks today for Jen, to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound and to Maurice Lennon for the music. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. If you'd like to contact me to get more information or to suggest a new topic for a show, email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next Wednesday at 7.30, I'll be hosting Dr. Louise Newbrod talking about the impact of addiction on families. That will launch our new monthly series on the topic of addiction. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison. Mm-hmm.